It's a beautiful day to be in the house of the Lord. We're glad you're here. We're especially glad if you're visiting with us. Be sure and sign our friendship pad there on the left-hand side of the pew and pass it down and get to know your neighbors. I think we all are beginning to learn to know each other in this early morning service. That's wonderful. You may remain standing now as we read the scriptures. We're in the book of James. We're coming toward the end of it. Today is one of the most beautiful passages, succinct and loaded in the New Testament about living the Christian life. And there's so much here, I just want us to get two or three little nuggets out of it and take it with us for the rest of our lives, if we will. Let's hear the word of the Lord. James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patient, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, who have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The word of the Lord. And you may be seated. Two words in this passage really give us what we need to know. One of them is translated in the early portion of the passage, it's translated patience. And the other one in the second part of the passage is also translated patience, but it's translated steadfastness. So patience and steadfastness. I believe if I I have a memory of the last seven or eight years that I've been privileged to speak to you at eight o'clock on Sunday morning. This is probably about the sixth or seventh time that we've had one of these words, the word for steadfastness, hupomeno in the Greek. We've had this as the main subject of our sermon. And it's because it's very, very important. What the word means, it means to remain under to stay under. And it contemplates that we're under a burden. We're under a load. We're under some stress. We're under some duress. We're under some obligations. We're under some difficulties. It recognizes where we live. We live by our day-by-day -day life, we kind of get piled on. I remember one of the favorite games we used to play as a kid was piling on. And some poor soul would be on the playground and he would fall either having been tackled in football or just, we used to love to knock. We do stuff in the old days that they won't let them do now. It's considered, they, you go to the principal's office, get suspended and get sent to reform school for the stuff we did at, at recess every single day in, in elementary and even up into junior high. But piling on was where a boy would get knocked down. And by the way, it was just boys. We didn't do this to the girls. There was no equal opportunity in those days. Um, but a boy would fall down and another boy would pile on. But it wasn't enough that he would pile on. He'd pile on this way. 
so that another boy could pile on this way, so another boy could pile on this way, so, so they could just stack it up and we could have the maximum. So the poor guy on the bottom was had five or six guys piled on him, and not to mention those that would come in and sort of lean into the stack. And before long, we had 15 kids, you know, all the boys in the class would be piled on. And the, the poor guy on the bottom usually would get hurt. He would get bruised or a little bit, his breath knocked out of him. He'd get up really more in, in more pain than anger, but it would be a good mixture of both and he'd be so frustrated. Well, that's the way our life is, isn't it? We get under something and then something piles on. We hear about an illness and then we hear about a financial difficulty. And then the first thing you know, we're pulled in two different directions. And then we're piled on again and we're piled on again. We are under this in our lifetime. And the scriptures recognize this. They recognize that we are not carried to heaven on flowery beds of ease, as Isaac Watts said, that we have to undergo and we have to work and we have to strive and we have difficulties and we fall and we fail and we're up against obstacles and sometimes like that poor little boy on the bottom of the pile, he just can't move, he can't get up, he can't catch his breath, he can't do anything until the pile begins to unstack. And that's the way we live our lives. And the word that's translated steadfastness contemplates that and it calls for us to bear it, to endure it, to hold it together, to resist as much as absolutely possible and to keep on enduring, and that word is translated endurance several places in the New Testament, but every uh, writer in the New Testament speaks of it. Jesus speaks of it, Paul speaks of it, John speaks of it, Paul, uh, James and uh, Peter. In fact, Peter has a lot to say about it and so does the writer of the book of Hebrews. So it, it, we need, that needs to get our attention that we are in that kind of, of circumstance in our life. The first word that we have there is the word be patient. That has to do with the duration. If, if the second word has to do with the quality of our life and the a description of our life is being piled on or having to bear up under a load and under difficult circumstances, the other one has to do with how long. Sometimes that word was translated long suffering and it means to be patient. It has to do with waiting. And you put these two concepts together and you hear clearly then what Jesus said when he says, he that endures to the end shall be saved. Life is a life of endurance. It's a long distance run. And endurance means steadfastness in faith, first of all. In fact, in the Old Testament, the concept of waiting on the Lord had to do with trusting the Lord. It wasn't that you were just, just killing time waiting for the Lord to do something. It was that it was in a constant placing of your trust in God. Whatever befall, you trust in the Lord. But I love the way that James unfolds this. And let's just run through the passage as quickly as we can to see some of the most beautiful things he exhorts us and he's speaking now to believers again, uh, to be patient until the coming of the Lord. There is a end point to our duration. There's an end point to our endurance. And that is 
the day that Christ comes, the last day, the final day, the day of, as it says here, his appearance. The coming of the Lord is the, the parousia of the Lord. It is the day when it will be revealed. It, it is a visitation from God. It's all, that word is often used to describe a royal visit. There is a last day, there's a final day when the Lord comes and his appearance is here. And what's significant about that coming is not just that he shows up, but that he has a presence, that he is here in his fullness and he is here to see us and to reward us and to receive us and to vindicate us and to restore us. And in, in the ultimate sense, he's there here at that day to save us. There's a very real sense in which the Lord has saved us by his death upon the cross, taking our sins and giving us a new standing before God and giving us new life and giving us all of these. But we're still in this same predicament. But there'll be a day when he will rescue us from that. And that's the day we're looking for. You can endure something if you know that a better day is coming. You can get through an illness if you know you're going to get well. Weeping might last all night, but joy comes in the morning. If you know, if you don't know that there's a better day, if you don't know there's going to be relief, if you don't know there's going to be salvation, if you don't know that there's a good, bright, magnificent end and purpose. And down in the passage here, he uses the word telos, the purpose of God, the end, the ultimate goal. If you don't know that there's glory out there, it makes it hard to endure back here. But if you know that this does not last forever, that it moves through to a, to a conclusion, and it's a wonderful conclusion. And so that's what he's saying here, until the coming of the Lord. And then he uses an example, the farmer who waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Beautiful agrarian illustration. It's very simply this. In Palestine, there were two seasons of rain that would be very significant for the crops. One would be in October. By the way, their growing season was the winter, what we think of as the winter months. They would be rains in October, November, and it would loosen the soil and moisten the soil and get it ready. And then the farmer could plow and then he could sow the seed. And then there was a time of waiting and the heart, the seed began to grow and germinate and then come forth and you had the, the, um, the, the, the uh, barley and the wheat. These fruit is always referring to a grain crop and the fields would begin to make. And be, while they were in their growing spurt, there would come another rain that would water and give life. And then they would come to a full harvest. And if there was a good season, there'd be the former rains and there would be the latter rains. Two seasons of rain would come. The worst thing that could happen would be for the rain to come when you're trying to plow or trying to plant or for the latter rain to be to be delayed and it come when you're trying to harvest, when the grain is ripened in the field and you're ready to get out and, and, and do your uh, harvesting and then the rains would come then and ruin the crop. I remember years ago down in Mississippi, farmers used to dread a heavy rain at cotton picking time because it would ruin the crop and it would keep you from getting in there and pulling uh, the, um, the cotton. And so the regulatory 
control that the Lord had. Even in ancient Israel, three times in ancient Israel, God promised them, I will give you the former rain and the latter rain. Have you ever thought about God being so much in control that he knows how to do the weather cycle in order to be for the benefit of mankind? Another thing that could happen to be no rain at all would be a drought through the whole season. And the blessing of God comes, but the farmer has to wait. He does not know if these rains are going to come at their right time, and he has to wait, and he has to trust. And that's just an illustration of what we have to do. Rain will come into your life. Did you know that? It's going to come. It's just when does it come? And for what purpose? And what fruit is born of the rain in your life? And so he, he tells us about, he tells us to be patient. He said, you also be patient. You be like the farmer. You trust God for the whole span of your lifetime, for the duration, whatever years you have and have left, you trust God for those years with patience. That's faith. That's living by faith. And that's what we're called to do. He says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. This is where I mentioned is up there. Now, twice he's talked about the coming of the Lord. There's a definite end in view. There's a definite day coming. We do this with a perspective. Faith is not blind. Faith is trusting in a reality that will, in fact, take place and knowing that God will bring it about. But then he says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Interesting, he admonishes us once again about our speech. He's going to talk about that again before he's through. He's talked about us rebuking speech. He's talked about harsh speech. He's talked about um, lying speech. He's talked about making false professions. There's a lot in the book of James about speech about the gift that God has given us. He's going to talk about oaths and some other things before he's done. But once again, he calls us to, to a life. As, as the mouth is the gateway to the public of what our heart and soul is really all about, he exhorts us. In order for our mouth to be right, our heart needs to be right. Because the issues of life come from the inside out. And so he's admonishing us to to pay attention to our speech. But then notice here, he's going to give two examples. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, and now the word is, uh, the word steadfastness that's used the rest of the way through, it is that endurance. He's going to give two examples. He's going to give the prophets, and he's going to give Job. And what can we learn from these two examples of suffering and patience. Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Well, the prophets were the people, as he says here, who brought the word of the Lord. They had a divine mission. They had a divine call upon their life. They were called by his name. They were raised up. In the case of Jeremiah, they were separated from their mother's womb for the cause of the word of God and the cause of the gospel and the cause of preaching. What more spiritual men could you find anywhere, anywhere than the prophets? Surely they had an exalted, easy lifestyle. They sat in their places and they studied and then they would proclaim and pronounce and they would preach. 
Have you ever read the life of the prophets? Every one of those guys went through incredible difficulty. Now just think of a couple of three of them, just right off the Hosea. In order to bear the message that he bore, he had to take a harlot for a wife. Think about that. And all the heartbreak and the shame and the bitterness and the disappointment and the extra cost to his psychological well-being. He had to go through that experience because God was bringing him through that experience in order to see God's got a purpose. There's a purpose in waiting and enduring and, and, and suffering. God's purpose was to, to tell Israel very clearly about her apostasy, how Israel as a bride had forsaken the husband, God himself. I take another prophet, Habakkuk. Habakkuk had uh, to uh, deal with some incredible philosophical and mental anguish in that he understood God's covenant that God was going to bless the people for obedience and, he, and they would be cursed for disobedience and he understood that God was a righteous judge and God was going to make everything right and then he would look around and he would see all this evil all around him and he would say how long O oh Lord are you going to put up with this wretched evil while your people suffer now that's a difficult question to deal with you have to really work hard to come up with a good, adequate theodicy. That is a defense of God's righteousness in the face of all the evil in the world. The moral evil and the natural evil. But what's worse, when God did talk to him, God didn't give him much comfort at all. God said, oh, this is nothing. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans and they're going to come in and destroy your people. And here's Habakkuk, that's a good time to give up on being a prophet because now you have nothing but a negative message to preach. Now everything you preach is going to sound like hate speech. But no, no. The Lord says, though the fig tree shall not blossom and there's no cattle in the stalls and there's no grain in the fields and there's no fruit on the vine, yet will I trust the Lord. I will wait for Him. I will sit right here and watch the Lord fulfill His purposes. Now that's enduring through it all. That's Habakkuk. How about um, Isaiah? Isaiah preached a message and he was an exalted prophet. He was probably the greatest writing prophet in terms of his life and his career and his ministry and the respect that he earned from, from the whole nation as well as the prophetic school that he started and the divine priestly work that he did as we know the very famous story there in Isaiah 6 where he was given a vision of the throne room of God. But poor old Isaiah had to endure an invasion. It was during his ministry that the Assyrians invaded and came right up to the edge of the city limits of Jerusalem and threatened Jerusalem. He had to prophesy words of hope and he had to hold up the king. He had to keep the whole people together so they would not surrender and cave and fall, but would continue to resist, knowing that in his day, the Lord would protect Zion. And eventually, things got so bad that the prophet Isaiah was martyred. Think about Jeremiah. We know the story of Jeremiah's ministry. Jeremiah had to witness, with great lamentation and sorrow, he had to witness the fall of Jerusalem. 
At least Isaiah in his day got to see God spare Jerusalem. But Jeremiah, reading Isaiah's old sermons, said, what's going on here? It gets worse. Ezekiel, the next prophet in line, was actually deported in that invasion to Babylon. He now was with God's people huddled by the stream of Kibar trying to take the, the, the Psalter down from the, the willow trees and, and play on the harps. And they just couldn't do it. They couldn't get them in tune. Their voices couldn't be raised. There was no uplift. There was no come thou almighty king. There was no holy, holy, holy. There was no doxology in their voice because things were as bad as they possibly could be. Zion was in ruins and they were in captivity. How do you keep believing in God when something like that happens? Really seriously. How can we sing the songs of Zion in a strange land? And I'm telling you, the land we're living in is getting stranger and stranger to me. Everything I believe, everything I stand for, everything I've learned all my life is now a minority opinion. And half of it is called hate speech. Never felt so unwelcome in any place in all my life. And yet I read the history books and this country was founded by guys like me. But not anymore. And so the bleakness and the darkness that sort of comes on us makes it, how can you keep on enduring, keep on trusting, keep believing in the day and the, in the coming of the Lord in the middle of all that? Poor Daniel. Daniel was deported and he had to actually live and function under great persecution, fiery furnaces, lion's dens. And by the way, this endurance of the prophets is not only enduring the trials of life, but also enduring persecution. And the Lord says in Matthew 5, the last beatitude Jesus gives is, blessed are you when you're persecuted. When men say all manner of evil against you, when you're ostracized, when you're alienated. And Jesus uses the same examples. He said, so they prosecuted the prophets before you. Here's a good example. And the book of Hebrews then puts it in perspective, talking about every one of these people, all of these prophets lived by faith. They endured. They hung in there. They were steadfast. And James says the same thing happens to you. Do you remember a few weeks back, chapter 1, verse 2? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's that same word. That's one of those previous sermons we've had on the same subject. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. That literally means whole. That you may be healthy, spiritually healthy, What's it like to be spiritually healthy in a sin-sick, toxic, morally polluted world and society? Oh, that's grace. You need grace. And by the way, this particular thing the Lord is calling us to do, and that is to have this steadfastness to endure, is one of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. It's this word, steadfastness. It comes to us as a gift. God grants it. It is not in our natural fallen natures to be able to, 
to undergo and to live under this kind of circumstance all the days of our lives. It takes spiritual empowerment. It comes from the Spirit of God. And then he uses another example. He uses Job. He said, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And we know the story of Job. We won't recount it. But Job's story was one where he had everything was wonderful. And then it went through unbelievable circumstances having to do with his family, his fortune, his health, his marriage. If you study Job very carefully about everything a man can hope for, you know, things get bad. You say, well, at least I've got my health. What if you lose your health? Well, I've got my wife. She loves me. She's standing by my side. And your wife walks up and said, curse God and die. What else you got? His kids have all been killed. His fortune's been taken away. His animals have all been stolen. Cyclone has taken down his structures, his houses. What have you got left, Job? Nothing. But the Bible says in all of this, Job continued to trust the Lord. And he became the supreme example of someone who steadily, consistently undergoes all of life's circumstances with a, with a faith, sometimes faltering, sometimes feeble, and certainly a questioning faith. Boy, did Job ask questions. And did Job want to know something about God? He demanded to know something about God. He searched the scriptures. He brought in wise counsel. He did everything you could to find out who, who is God and what's going on and is he really in control and what is his purpose and what is he really like? He doesn't look like a very good God to me at this time. He had questions and he wanted answers. And the Bible tells us at one point, he finally came to the point, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye sees you. He says, I know my Redeemer lives and that one day he will stand upon the earth and I will see him in my flesh. Boy, if that's not the hope of the glory of the coming of the Lord, the resurrection of the dead, the seeing of God, that's the purpose that God has. And then it mentioned earlier in the passage, I didn't, I didn't preach much on it, but it says the judge stands at the door. The coming of the Lord is a time of judgment. And that should scare and concern a lot of us. Because he's a righteous judge. He's going to punish every single sin. He's going to punish it in you or he will have punished it in Christ if Christ is your substitute. One way or another, that sin's going to get punished. He's a righteous judge. But listen to the last words. You've seen the purpose of the Lord. Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those that are called according to His purpose. It's the purpose of the Lord that's being worked out in your life. Not your convenience, not your pleasure, not your happiness. But it's God's purpose that's being worked out in your life and in your circumstance. And I love these last words. If I was a preacher, I'd stop right here and preach. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Don't you want those qualities in a judge if you're guilty? 